Our passage this morning, taken from John chapter 14, we're looking at verse 16 to 31. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Holy Spirit of, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us, and not to the world? Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. This morning we're going to look at the rest of chapter 14. And there's a lot going on in this passage, so it's hard to just nail something down and have this as a theme. But I believe that what we find is that there is a picture of Life as it should be lived. I think there are times when uh, we look at life and our current life seems a bit, I don't know, depressing? Depends on how you look at things. And uh, some words of sort of depressed words seem to come to me as I thought about it. It comes from uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. So... Macbeth is uh, not a very nice character, and he says this in uh, scene five uh, of the tragedy. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. All our yesterdays have lighted fools away to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, 
Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. Tis a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. If life is like that, why live? Fortunately, we have the Lord who gives us a series of promises in this chapter. So, we want to look at this and see why we shouldn't be, as Macbeth was, looking at life and seeing its hopelessness, its its a fleetingness that it has substance it has joy it has power it has purpose some of the promises already given to us we're just going to go through this quickly first promise he will prepare a place for us second promise he will come back for his bride we look forward to that and of course the bride being his church Third promise, believers will do greater works. Not greater work, because he did the final, most magnificent work of salvation for us. It's not talking about that. There's nothing greater than that, but the works that he does, or did, the miracles and so forth. But even greater than the miracles, I believe, as Pastor pointed out, is sharing the gospel. Because of his finished work, we know for sure salvation has been accomplished. And therefore, we are able to do greater works than just mere miracles. The true miracle is the transformation of the soul and the forgiveness of our sins. Fourth promise, he will answer our prayers. That's always good. I know that there's so many different cults in Hawaii that uh, I wonder, you know, as they do their prayers and so forth, do they expect them to take place, expect them to be fulfilled? How do they know? Jesus promises that what we ask, he will do. Fifth promise is what we find here in verse 16. We will receive the Comforter. So I will ask the Father and he will give you another Helper, that he may be with you forever. A few things to think about. Helper. There's a number of different translations for this word. The Greek word is parakletos, or the paraclete. No, not the parakeet. That's wrong. But it can be translated in a number of ways. It's such a rich word. So, comforter is one translation. Counselor, advocate. We need comfort at times. There's some things that we certainly go through in life that deserve and need the comforting ministry of the Spirit. Counselor, we certainly need advice. We need good advice, wise advice. A counselor is one that we go to. So, the Holy Spirit is also our counselor, guiding us, directing us, helping us to understand the things going on in our lives. Advocate, he speaks for us, intercedes for us. And it's interesting that Paul talks about the Spirit interceding for us in Groaning is too deep for words. That means there are times when we don't know what to pray, how to pray. But the Spirit does. He takes our feeble prayers and he puts them into God's will and expresses them in the way that it should be expressed. So even in prayer, when we don't know the right way to pray or how to pray, or maybe the prayer is selfish, he'll take it and turn it into something that is acceptable within the will of God. 
and he may be with us forever. Think about that. So, can you take anything away one day, minus forever, minus from forever? Can that happen? No. This is a comfort also, that he is there with us. Paul picks up a, an important thing about this, and I think it was also shared before by Pastor. Ephesians 4.30. You can't repeat this enough. Almost. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That means he's sealed with us. This is something different. The Old Testament didn't have this. The Old Testament saints could not count that the Spirit would be there with them all the time. In fact, in Psalm 51, David writes, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That is a prayer that we cannot pray. That the Spirit is with us forever. Sealed with us. So, it also pictures, it has, this is one of the things that when we talk about eternal security, this is one of those verses that I think contributes to the overall picture that we are truly secure as believers in Christ, that we will make it to heaven. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Did you catch that? That What part? He abides with you and will be in you. This gives us kind of a scope between Old and New Testament. In fact, Old Testament and New Testament is sort of summarized as far as the Spirit's ministry to the believer in this little phrase. <laughs> Sometimes John is criticized for being rather simple in his Greek. His Greek is not sophisticated. Not like Luke or... Paul's. But think about the clarity and the depth of what he's saying. In a few short words, he pictures the ministry of the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant. He's with you. And during this time, they were still under the Old Covenant. The New Covenant hadn't been fully established. Jesus hasn't died on the cross, and Pentecost hasn't occurred yet. But will be in you. The indwelling Spirit is what is being anticipated. When he's sealed with us, we have that assurance that we're going to make it. No matter how bad things get in this life, the Spirit is there to comfort us, console us, counsel us. He is our advocate. He, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He doesn't abandon us. Even though we may feel like, you know, maybe God has left us and he's not there. We, we, we pray and, and nothing seems to happen. It seems like we're, our prayers are bouncing off the roof and coming back. Nothing's happening. But he hears it. Sometimes we have to wait for the answer. We don't like to wait, do we? Just, I want this prayer answered, Lord. And... Uh, in a few, you know, minutes or hours, I'd like to see something happen. But sometimes you may have to wait. How long? It's up to the Lord. But he says, I'm always there for you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. And Paul indicates that we are adopted into his forever family. We don't have the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. 
which we cry out, Abba, Father. Some have said that the word Abba has the word Daddy in it, or means Daddy, and it doesn't really, Hebrew doesn't really give us that. It's, it's a little more formal, I think, and it's very emotional. Perhaps, my beloved Father would be something close to that, to call God our Father. That's special. It's amazing. The Old Testament saint could never call God in a personal way his father. He was a father of the nation and so forth, but never in a personal way. This is new. This is something that Jesus is teaching. Pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. He continues and says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. How's that going to work? The world no longer see him? Yes. They're going to crucify him. They're going to bury him and think that he's gone. That their problem is solved and it's over. But he promises that they will see him again. And we understand that this is something that he will come back. The resurrection is so important to the gospel message because it gives us that hope. He appears to his disciples saying, it's not all over. You're all depressed because I was crucified and here I am. And he was whole. He wasn't all beat up and, you know, sh- shredded by the, the scourge or anything like that. He was, he was the Lord of life and they saw that and gained great hope. They will see him again, even though he's going to his death soon. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. What? What did he just say? That sounds kind of like gobbledygook. He's just saying words, phrases. No, this is really full of theological importance. I'm in my Father. Talking about, again, the Trinity. Jesus is God. So that makes two gods. No. There's only one God. A good single sentence definition of the Trinity. In the nature of the Godhead, there are three eternal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So in the nature of the one God, let me put it that way. In the nature of the one God, there exists three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we don't have many gods, we have one. But somehow in the manifestation of God, we see three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not in as modalism as Pastor indicated. Not in different modes, but three distinct persons. That's why Jesus prayed to the Father. And it's like, is he talking to himself? Well, he is submissive to the Father. He's doing the will of the Father. He's carrying out the will of the Father. And he prays to the Father. But he says, you are in me. That's going to happen. That when we see the New Testament developed and Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he says, we have been baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. That means we're going to be in in Christ. So how does that work? Because Jesus is God, he is completely holy, right? Absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. 
But what about us? Well, our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah says. So, how much righteousness can I be to make it into heaven? How, how righteous do I have to be? Perfectly righteous. 99%. How's 99%? Won't make it. 100% only. Perfect righteousness. How's that going to work? I can't be that righteous. Exactly. Because he puts the standard far above our ability to accomplish it ourselves. When he says, you must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. <laughs> well, that leaves me out. That leaves all of us out. But that's why we're placed in Christ. His righteousness, his perfect righteousness covers us. He knew no sin so that he could become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's amazing. His righteousness makes us able to be acceptable into the heavenly realms. And then he says, I and you. He says, how's that work? I can understand the, you know, going you know, into Christ, being part of the body. But he's also in me. That's right. He indwells us through the Spirit. That's what Paul can write. The, the idea that Christ in me, the hope of glory. Sealed. We're secure. When we make that decision to trust Christ, we're sealed we're secure, we're going to make it. No matter how bad things get, we're going to be there. So, if you want two passages, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, being baptized into one body, I and you, Colossians 1, 27. We will be indwelt with Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. So, he's there with us all the time. That's a little scary. If you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, the Lord know. Oh yeah, He does. That's why we need to walk straight, not compromise. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So we are in the process of getting to know Christ better. And better. Every passing day. And how do we do that? Well, of course, studying his word, knowing him from what the word says, but also our daily experience. The word to know. One of the words in the Greek word, uh, vocabulary, to know, gnosko, means experiential knowledge. Meaning, as we walk in this life and we trust him, we find out he is faithful. And that these times of seeing his working, it's just going to increase our faith. It's going to show us that he is there for us. It's amazing. One time I had to preach and I had this problem. I think it was, um, I think it was the gout. My mom would always say, hey, the gout is for rich people. Well, obviously not. I'm not rich. But I got it. It's like, what's this? My foot's swelling up and it hurts like crazy. I could barely walk. And I was hopping around 
well, limping around the house Saturday night and going, oh, I don't think I can stand up. I can't do the message. I don't know what I'm going to do. I actually had a, like a, a, a cane I was using. I said, I'm going to have to maybe sit down and preach. That's kind of awkward. I got there and uh, we started service. And I was feeling it and saying, hmm, it doesn't seem so bad. I can put my foot on it. And by the time I had to walk down to get up to the pulpit, it was gone. Ah, he healed you. Well, yes. But only for the sermon. <laughs> After the service, it came back. But that's all I needed. That's all was required. I was comfortable. I had no pain. And I knew it had to be him. It had to be. I said, man. That's great. I mean, I don't mind the fact that I have this stupid thing. I'm going to watch my diet a little bit more carefully now. But I was able to deliver the message as he wanted, without any hindrance. Uh, that is experiential knowledge. That builds into your life this sense of confidence in him. And I, I think there's times when we just look back and go, he has been with me all this time. He's been guiding my, my steps. Even at times when I'm pretty sure I wasn't a Christian, he was still moving me in the right direction. And again, this picture that he gives over and over. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the objective truth. The objective idea that if we are truly Christians and we want to demonstrate our love for him. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Oh, I feel love for him. I feel so good when I'm in his presence. That's good. That's good. But do you obey him is the real question. That demonstrates to others that you are one who truly loves Christ. You can't get away from that. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened to you that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Interesting. That it seems like it's just, just to us. You're going to disclose yourself to us. And don't you want the rest of the world to know about you? And the answer is yes, of course. Because he's going to give the assignment to them. He's not going to do it because he's going to ascend to be with the Father. He's going to be at the right hand of the Father. But he will send his disciples out. Go and make disciples of all nations, he will say. So he's going to turn that task over to his followers, to us. This is what he responds. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And, of course, he will give them that great commission at the end of Matthew. And we see it also uh, at the end of Luke. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. That means he's going to be in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God indwelling us. That's hard to even comprehend that the very God of the universe, the creator of all things, indwells us. So, I don't feel that much different. No, but there are times when You'll be called on to do something. Maybe something you feel very uncomfortable doing or you don't want to do it. It's something that seems to go against your nature, your personality. 
something that you say, Lord, I'm not capable. And he enters into your will and says, you can do this. Don't shrink back. You can do it. And there are things that I have been able to do that I have never thought I would ever want to do or could do. I thought of a very sedentary life, being an artist in an art studio someplace out in the forest. That'd be nice. No people to worry about. What's wrong with you? Why would God choose you if you don't even want to be around people? Because he transforms lives. He gives you new purpose. He gives you abilities that you never thought you had or could have. Like Moses, oh, I can't speak, Lord. Ah, who has made your mouth? You'd be surprised what God can do through you, that you're willing to follow him. We'll make our abode with him. One of my professors said this, translated it this way, we will make our abiding abode with him. That means he will really be with us. That means he will never leave us or forsake us. Not going to leave us as orphans. And to ever think that that was something that God could do. Once he indwells us, he's going to go, Ah, you blew it, I'm gone, that's it. Not going to make it. The promise is that we will. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And of course, he will give them further instructions and commands, and they are to demonstrate their love by carrying them out. And boy, did they carry it out. Think of this motley crew, 12 men, that he, Jesus, is going to launch a worldwide evangelistic program with tax gatherer, a zealot, fisherman, unlearned, never went to a seminary or a rabbinic school at that time. But no matter, he is capable of bringing a person to where he wants them to be. These things he says, I have spoken to you while abiding with you. While I'm with you, I'm telling you, instructing you, encouraging you. But he will say, you know, some of these things I can't tell you. About. You, won't, you can't bear them at this point. It's, it's too much. But you will get it. You will get it. Just but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Think about it. We're told we need to study the Word of God. That's part of our task. Be good workmen to study. And the question is, do you study? He says, well, of course. I kind of had to be forced to study. The direction God gave me was a career that required a lot of study. And in my basic nature, in my fallen self, I didn't like school. In fact, I hated school. People say, ah, how do you like school? Oh, I hate school. Don't like it. 
So what does God do when I trust in Christ? He says, I'm going to send you to more school. <laughs> like, what? You got the wrong guy. Come on. The funny thing is, I love to study now. I just love it, especially, and particularly, his word. It's a never-ending challenge to learn more. That even though I've taught it and studied it once before, twice, and, and throughout, you know, 40 plus years of ministry, it's like, it's always, there's something new there. You can never plumb the depths of God's word. There's always more there. And you get surprised and delighted to see Something new each time you study. He will teach us. The Spirit is there to help us. It opens the Scriptures for us. He teaches you all things and brings to your remembrance. Now these men had probably very good memories. Because they didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have a lot of printed stuff. In fact, if anything was printed, it was done by hand. And only the few select people, like the rabbis and so forth, had access to the printed word, handwritten on scrolls. Didn't have, you know, a printing press or anything that they could make copies. Can I make a copy of that, Rabbi? No. It's for us only. But he gives them, with their, you know, amazing memories, they, they had to have good memories, a divine enablement also. So when you go and you say, I'm going to study this word, but I wonder how accurate this, this Bible is. You can count. It is extremely accurate. Amazing. And when you study it, you can count that it's telling you what you need to know. These men not only were guided, were taught, but divinely given the remembrance of the details. Well, some of it seems to be contradictory. You know, I thought that too. As an agnostic at one point in my life, I thought, you know, the Bible's a nice book, but, you know, full of all kind of weird stuff, contradictions, I'm sure. But every time I studied further, as a new young believer, wanted to know, is this a contradiction? I read this someplace, and this guy said it was a contradiction. And I studied and go, oh, guy missed the boat. He didn't get it. It's not a contradiction. It actually is very consistent. They were accurate. You can trust what was written for us. So the seventh promise, disciples be taught by the Spirit. We also have the illuminating work of the Spirit for us. That's why when we study the Word, we can count on him opening it for us. Think about it. The Holy Spirit as the one who indwells, the one who will bring to mind the things that are necessary and transform the, the lives of these disciples. And if you will, just look at one example. It seems that when God takes hold of them, especially the difference between as he's teaching and walking with them, and then, of course, when he sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter was absolutely sure he would never betray the Lord. He said, no, I would never. I, I'll die first before I would betray you. So, 
He says, um, well, you're going to deny me three times before the, the rooster crows. He says, no, no, I, I'll die first. I won't. Never, never. What happens? Well, you know. Servant Bill says, well, weren't you with that carpenter guy? He goes, no, 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 not me. No. Got the wrong person. And he denies the Lord three times. Then he realizes what he has done. Perhaps the words of Jesus echoing in his thoughts. He goes out and weeps bitterly. He says, oh, utter failure. What a failure I've been. Horrible. I'm just, I'm no good. I just, I can't carry this stuff out. And so they go back fishing. But 52 days later, on the day of Pentecost, he stands up in front of a whole crowd of people there, gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. And he preaches this amazing sermon. Wonderfully theological, accurate, biblical, powerful. And he doesn't flinch to say the truth. Where he just backed down when the servant girls asked him if he was with, wasn't he one of those with the carpenter? Now, the spirit in him gave him such courage. Just this one verse. Well, I think it's actually a combination of two verses. He says this, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. <laughs> Talk about fearless. He points the finger and says, you put him to death. You cried out for his crucifixion. Think about this, though. So look at this. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God knew this beforehand and predetermined it. So he said, I can't be blamed for this. God knew it and he predetermined it. It happened even though I was one of those crying out for his crucifixion. And I can't be blamed because God already foreordained it. No, no. He says, you are still responsible for your decisions. You didn't have to. So here's that wonderful, interesting tension between the sovereignty of God who knew all things and determined it, predetermined it. And the fact that we have a choice. We have free will. Absolutely. We can choose or choose not to do something. You, he says, nailed to a cross. You cannot escape the consequences of what you did. How do you balance those two things? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Well, it's not easy. In fact, people debate it. Sometimes they'll side more with man's responsibility. You have the responsibility. You have to decide. You have to have faith. And you have to, you know, you have to maintain your faith. And, and you could lose your salvation. On the other hand, oh, God is sovereign. And it doesn't matter whether we get the gospel out or not. People are going to be saved no matter what. It's predetermined. No. Both are true. They seem contradictory. Well, this is something called a, um, an apparent contradiction. It seems that way in our limited logical ability, but um, you have to have both of these to understand the fullness of God and His working. 
You have to balance it correctly. You can't dismiss one or the other or minimize one or the other. As one of my professors said, you must live in the tension of the two doctrines. Said, ah, that's not logical. No, maybe not, not to us. But I like to say it's supra logical. It goes beyond our logic. You think, I can figure this out. I'm smart. Really? You only use 10% of your brains. What's going on there? Got 90% left. What is that doing for you? Well, I should be able to figure it out. No. This is God. He's infinite, all wise. He knows way more than any of us. And even if our our finite brains were fully capable of functioning 100%, we still could not figure him out. So, that's where faith comes in. You have to trust him. You see, the only wise God that makes every decision he makes is absolutely wise. Perfect. This peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Some of us could probably use a little more peace. I get agitated. Watch the news. Why wouldn't I get agitated? You feel like, oh, maybe I better watch some animal videos quick. Some cute animals might be helpful. But he says, my peace I give to you. Okay, what kind of peace is that? Can you explain further? No, but he demonstrates it. We're going to have divine peace. What kind of peace does Jesus offer us? Think about it. He's about ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray. He's going to be in such intense prayer that he's going to sweat. He's going to sweat blood. Sounds kind of fishy to me. No. It's actually a condition called um, hemotidrosis. It's an actual but rare condition. Usually that happens to someone under intense stress. Because the capillaries burst and so forth and blood comes out. And when that happens, it says, the doctors have noted that the skin becomes extremely sensitive to anything. Think about that. More than the normal pain that he felt. With this condition, he felt every lash, everything that was done to him, beaten and crown of thorns, more intently and intensely than anything we could even imagine. But that's not it. That's not all. Again, he scourged. And then he's brought before the people, offered, you know, what do you want to, for me to release? And I think that Pilate thought that for sure they would take this rabbi because he offered one of the, you know, the dregs of society, Barabbas. You know, they won't choose him. But I, I saw this little drama where the crowds were pictured as, you know, who do we choose? Well, let's choose Barabbas because we know him. He's like one of us. He's sinful like us. This man, Jesus, I, I can't relate to him. And let's choose him. And they cried out for Barabbas. Think about that, hearing the crowds saying, crucify him. That emotionally has to hurt. But he knows what he has to do. He has to go to the cross. That's what he came for. 
that was necessary for the salvation. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Think about that. He didn't die as a normal crucified person would die. Normally, somebody crucified, I mean, they have nothing to lose, so they, they get mocked and spit on and all of this. And they would yell back, they would curse at the people down below and as, as far as they could many times because they're breathing very heavily, their mouth would dry up and, and it's very difficult for them to speak. But when they could and if they had the ability and, of course, the, the desire to get back at these people, they would. They would cry out, they would curse them back. Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? He forgave them. Even at a time where, you know, he was in such great pain, he made sure he took care of the, the thief on the cross and encouraged him and say that he will be with him in paradise. And he looked down and saw his mother and said, uh, John will take care of you. He took care of his mother to make sure that she was going to be cared for while on the cross. He was completing his task, making sure, as a good son would, to make sure his mother was going to be cared for. Not by non-believers, not by his brothers, who at that time were not believers, but by someone who he knew would care for his mother. And it says, Father, forgive them. They nailed him to the cross, and he prays for their forgiveness. You know, had it been me, I'd be calling out to God saying, blast them, Lord, you know, send down lightning and strike them dead and fry them to pieces or whatever. That's me. My sin nature. He forgave them. He cried and prayed, Father, forgive them. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful seems like over and over again we have this encouraging word by Jesus. I mean, in the very beginning of this discourse, he knows that they're troubled. This is a strange. I mean, Judas left. You know, we don't know exactly why. Um, that's just a sort of a very depressing kind of mood as they celebrate the Passover. He spoke about, you know, the bread being his body, the wine being his blood. That's weird and troubling. That's why in the very beginning he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. By saying that, he's actually saying, I am God. You believe in the Father, but I am the Son. You can believe in me too. That's a almost admission of deity right there. To ask them to believe in him. But again, he says, I know you're troubled, but don't let it be. You have a choice. Troubled? Well, don't, let, don't be fearful. So many times we see that, that phrase, um, you know, fear not. That's probably the most repeated command that we have in the scriptures. Why? Because we tend to fear about anything, everything. This morning I was walking up to the 
you know, to my classroom. I saw this big cockroach on the floor. I said, this is not a, a good witness to people. I need to remove it. I pick it up and it's moving. Like, I wasn't truly afraid, but it did surprise me that he was still wiggling. So I stepped on him. I, after that, no fear at all. And I kicked him to the side. And said, Get out of here. Then, you know, uh, yeah, you can be fearful about little things. I remember a prayer meeting that I was, uh, I was at. I was a young Christian. We were at a prayer meeting, and, and my to-be wife, Lana, was um, sitting kind of across, and others were around in a circle. And then she looked up. Now, why was I looking at her? Hmm. Anyway, that's not beside the point. She looked up with this look of abject horror. Like, like Jason was behind me, or some serial killer with a, you know... Power saw or something. I thought, oh my goodness, it was a flying cockroach. We have those in Hawaii, those big fat flying cockroaches. She saw that and she just, and I thought, for sure I'm dead. <laughs> Never know what you're fearful of, but there's things perhaps even worse than flying cockroaches in this life. Much worse. But can you hear the words? Don't let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. We should be the bravest people on this planet. But nothing stops us. Nothing hinders us. Nothing will keep us from doing what God has commanded us to do. Because He's there. He's with us. You heard that I said to you, I will go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. The Father's greater than I. He knows they're sad, but he says, you shouldn't be, because I'm going to the Father. Well, isn't that sad also? But he's going to tell them that he's going to send the Spirit. He's already indicated the Spirit's going to be in them. He's going, they're going to have the Helper to help them along. One seminary student asked uh, one of the professors, you know, when I'm in your class, I just feel so good. I feel so close to God. I, and when I walk out of the classroom, I just feel kind of junk and I feel alone. And so, well, professor said, what if I could be inside of you? What if I could be there and kind of whisper in your ear, tell you what uh, you need to do and help you along? He says, oh, wow, that'd be great. He says, there's something better. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Always. They should rejoice. But it's hard. Circumstances didn't seem to promote a lot of rejoicing. It seems like a lot of sadness. But when you realize that ultimately God is in control, nothing happens without Him knowing it, seeing it. It helps. The Father is greater than I. Pastor mentioned uh, two evangelists, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. Both were amazing, but... It was a considered opinion of most that Charles Templeton would be the next great evangelist. But as he went to preach and he went to Europe and so forth, they had packed crowds and they would take turns, Charles and then Billy. He just started to have these nagging doubts and thoughts that come to him. When all was done, lights are turned off and he's by himself, he's wondering, 
I'm preaching about a God of love and I cannot quite reconcile the fact that this God of love allows so much suffering in this world. Why would he do that? And, and believers go through so much. Why would a loving God allow that to take place? And he couldn't, you know, why didn't he get rid of evil? There's so much evil. You know, get rid of Satan. Why doesn't he do that? And these nagging doubts and other questions really bothered him to the point where he just said, I cannot stand in front of people and preach a gospel I cannot believe in anymore. And he resigned from his you know, position. He said, I had about $600 of, of stuff and took it up to Canada where he was from. But before that, he said to Billy, you know, I've got these doubts, I've got these problems, let me share them with you because I cannot, I cannot resolve them. And he told him all the things that he just was struggling with, the problem of evil and why God is the only one, Christ is the only one to save. And Billy said, yeah, those are, those are hard questions. So I, I, I'm going to go off and pray. And he prayed and prayed, Lord, help me, help me understand. He came back and said to Charles, I don't have all the answers, but I trust him. And that made the difference between these two men. Charles Templeton couldn't figure it out. And he couldn't trust God. And then he lost everything. He said, I, I, miss, I miss my friend Billy Graham. But I can't continue. Even at the end when Lee Strobel interviewed him, he said, yeah, Jesus is the most amazing person ever to live a life. But... Lee says, maybe, maybe you feel he let you down? He says, no, no. I miss him so much. His faith, his lack of faith to trust caused him to lose that, that wonderful relationship, that wonderful, fruitful life he could have had. There's things we're not going to understand fully. But do you trust God? He says, now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to be with you. You're going to see me. And they go, oh no, he's going to leave us. The result will be belief. And from these men will come the gospel presented to the known world in such a powerful way, transforming cities. These are the men who have come to Turn the world upside down. Jesus then says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Well, we can't say the same thing. The ruler of this world is here, and he has a lot in me. There's a lot of things he can point to. There's a lot of things that he could nudge, probably, and probably in your life, too. Weaknesses and things that we want to hide. But we're totally accepted in the Beloved. And it doesn't matter that Satan's out to get us. And sometimes you feel it, you sense it. There's something just hindering your preparation or your week or whatever it is. All kinds of things are happening at the end of this week. After I said, yeah, I'll, I'll preach on Sunday. Well, wow, everything went south. I mean, even this morning, 
the lights in the bathroom went out, like, breaker switch. No. It was a little reset button that I didn't think of pressing. Just, you know, you're using the hair dryer. Everything goes dark. Oh, great. That's all I need. But those things happen. Look past all the, you know, the, the obvious and you go, there's somebody that may not want me to be up here. We'll get to church or be prepared. The rule of the world is coming and Jesus, he has nothing in me. He cannot touch Christ. He tried. He tempted Christ in the wilderness. And each time Jesus did what? When he answered, what did he do? He quoted scripture. You know where? Well, not specifically, but he quoted everything from the book of Deuteronomy. How much do you know of the book of Deuteronomy? You think you could fight the battle with Satan with just that book? But Jesus did. Means we got to work some work to do to study. The answers are there. The power is there. The protection is there. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. So they get up. And they leave. Wait a minute. I thought that verse of chapters 15 and 16 are also part of the upper room discourse. And in some commentaries, you'll see upper room discourse, chapter 14 to 16. Uh-uh. 15 and 16 is the discourse on the way to the Gethsemane, I think. Well, it's kind of an unwielding title, but it's not the upper room. They leave at the end of chapter 14. So the upper room discourse is only chapter 14. There's a story about a building that was caught on fire. Some people were caught by surprise and so forth. And unbeknownst to, to many of them, there's a little girl that was up on the upper floors. The, the firemen were there and uh, they were saying, you know, trying to get people saved and have to jump out of the windows. There are certain areas that were just blocked. The flames are getting too, too much. And yet, because of the smoke, the smoke obscured the firemen below with the net. A little girl comes out and she says, uh, uh, you know, she's scared and she's crying and they said, you, just jump, just get to the ledge and jump. But she couldn't see. She said, we're right beneath you. Jump and you'll be saved. Otherwise the fire will get you. Said, I can't. I can't. And she heard her voice, a voice that she recognized. It was her father. I said, darling, it's dad. I'm here with the firemen. Jump. We'll catch you. She got up on the ledge, she jumped through the smoke, and was saved. The voice of the Father is calling. Do we recognize it? Do we hear it? Do we respond to it? He says, Trust. He says, I don't know. I, there's so many questions I have, so many things I, I need answered first. But sometimes you won't have those questions answered. Then maybe not even in this life will you be able to answer some of those questions. But you've got to trust. There's enough evidence for the reality of God, the Bible, 
and the work of Jesus Christ to convince any man who's willing to study it. If you have already done that, you've trusted, what do you do with your life? Not all of you will go to seminary. Noah's going, I've got to finish this thing. Yeah, you're called. Not all of us are called. That's also good. Because if you're not called, don't go into the work of the ministry. You already are in, the, in ministry. So, really? Yep. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have a diploma. You don't have to have an ordination. Because God has ordained you already. He's chosen you. He's given you your walking orders. Go, make disciples. I said, well, I, I'm not a minister. I don't have a reverend or, or whatever in front of my name. You don't need one. Because right now, this is where you're being equipped. This time you have is time for your equipping to be prepared for what's coming up this next week or the rest of your life. And that's it. The men that are the teachers, pastors, and so forth are for the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry. That's you. That's your job. Your calling. And it's a privilege to have that calling. And it's a real joy when you follow Christ like that. Father in heaven, just thank you so much that you are there for us. Thank you so very much that you made many promises to us and you will keep them and have kept them. There are things along the way that might seem like a big problem, a stumbling block. Maybe even placing doubts in our mind about our relationship to you or maybe our worthiness to follow you. But all that's not an issue. The fact that you loved us with unconditional love. You called us by name. And we have responded. But if there's someone that hasn't responded, we're not sure if they truly have trusted in Christ. This is a good time to do that. Good time to say, Lord, this is the time for me. I trust that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that I might have a new life in Him. Trust. The key. Thank you, Lord, for that. Otherwise, it would be too hard to try to work for salvation. We couldn't do it. Be good enough. Because we're not. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life that he gives to us. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.